Right, death. Uh, I'll uh, talk a bit through each of these stories and uh, kind of give you a bit of my take on them and incorporate some comment on uh, responses to your um, to your postings. Um, the more general questions in your postings then we'll come to uh, later on. Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. This was the, the, the length of Sarah's life. Oh, yeah, somebody wanted me to talk about the length of these guys' lives. Um, I imagine that they are part of the, um, the way in which the Genesis stories are, have touches of parabolic history uh, all the way through to them, um, and uh, that you don't have to take the ages literally in our terms um, it's, uh, you can see sometimes how the ages are symbolic. Uh, back in Genesis 5, all those guys live for 900 and something years. As if each of them you think is going to get to 1,000, but then they never do. And each of the little paragraphs about them ends up saying, and he died. He lived 900 and he died. He lived 900 and he died. You can see the, uh, the way in which the theological point is being made in, 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 the, in the telling, uh, uh, even the, in the writings of these genealogists. When you get into people like, excuse me, oh, sorry. Uh, when you get into people like Sarah, the ages have become closer. I mean, through this latter part of Genesis, the ages are closer to uh, the kind of ages that we could see being realistic. Uh, and I imagine there's a story there, there's a kind of uh, symbolism there about um, the uh, get, getting nearer to uh, life as we know it, um, and yet still being in a slightly different realm. Um, yeah. Um, Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, and then there's the story of him... Um, having this um, Middle Eastern kind of uh, polite bargaining, but nobody's going to say it's bargaining, discussion about whether he can buy a burial place. Um, one of the significances of what's going on there is that uh, this is the way that Abraham acquires actual possession of a bit of the promised land. It comes to, be, comes to belong to Abraham. Um, a, a, a foothold, or at least a skeleton hold, um, on the promised land. Whether Abraham was doing the right thing, I don't know, because Abraham's not really supposed to have to buy the promised land. God's, God's, God's going to give it to him. But anyway, he does, and there is somewhere for Sarah and um, subsequently Abraham uh, and uh, some of the next generations to, to be buried there. Uh, one assumption about the story, then, is that burial is important. Um, and one reason for that, uh, which has continued... Uh, which continues through the Old Testament, and usually really in, in Christian contexts, um, is the awareness that the body really is part of the person. The body is not just a disposable shell. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the body is the thing by which um, you express yourself. I mean, what would Justin or Neil be without their bodies? They express who these people are, do they not? 
What a gloomy thought. Well, no, what a nice thought. No. Uh, you, you, you are who you are your bo- uh, through your body. Your body is part of the real you. And so burial um, is important. Um, the um, assumption that there are rituals to do with death uh, is taken for granted here. Abraham goes in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Um, and evidently does that for a while, apparently in some anticipation of the Jewish practice of sitting shiva, sitting, sitting for a while, mourning, uh, and then needs to do something about it and about her actual burial. Um, and as people often say, uh, as some of you said in effect in your postings, uh, we, we miss out in our culture in not having mourning rituals um, or, or having got alienated. We have got mourning rituals in a sense, but we've kind of got alienated from them. They aren't as natural a part of life as maybe they once were. Um, the focus on a burial place rather than merely on death itself, on death in itself in the story um, is um, striking. Maybe the fact that this is one of the few um, stories about the uh, death and burial um, of a woman, uh, maybe it's, it's striking, it's significant that it's Sarah whose story you do get. Uh, Sarah is the, the great um, mother of the faithful, as Abraham is the great father of the faithful. Um, Abraham himself... Um, dies um, at 175 uh, in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And various of you asked to clarify what those phrases mean. Um, full of years, uh, I take to mean he's lived as long a, as long a life as it were he'd had enough. I don't mean he feels it, just means he's fed up and he wants to go. But he's had a full life. That's the way we might put it. He's lived a full life. He's lived the fullness of his years. And then he's gathered to his people. And that phrase recurs. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it links with what literally happens when you die. Um, which is, well, now they've got this tomb. Uh, and so that's where everybody um, goes to be. Everybody in the family. Uh, so uh, death is not lonely because you're, you're in other people's company. Uh, when somebody dies, then you go to the family tomb. If you're reasonably well off and you've got an actual tomb, not everybody would have. Sometimes there were communal uh, graves. But um, if you've got a family tomb, then you go to it and you roll the rock off the front of it. And you notice that there's rather less of grandma than there was the last time you looked. Uh, and that's, but that means it's possible to, to push grandma along a bit in order for there to be room to put the next person in there. Um, and you then put the stone back in front of the tomb. And if you're the person inside, then you would say to yourself, if you were capable of saying something to yourself, well, it's dark, um, and I can't do anything, and it's going to be a bit boring for the next 3,000 years, but at least I'm here with everybody else. Uh, You are with your um, family. Um, And the... um, Assumption then is that Sheol, which we'll come to, I dare say, in one or two of these uh, stories in a minute, uh, is the, uh, the equivalent uh, as a place to the grave uh, for your, your spirit, soul, per- person, mind, 
um, that's kind of semi-independent of your body. Um, it's only semi-independent in that you couldn't have, you wouldn't be able to think if you hadn't got a body to think with. Um, and yet uh, your, your personality, your inner person, is capable of being a bit independent from your body. To say it's the inner person is kind of not quite right in a way because it's capable of wandering off. Like, you know, some of you are probably thinking about what, what, sup, what you're going to have for supper when you get home tonight if you're really lucky. I could be thinking, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pour a glass of wine and sit in my armchair and watch a DVD with Anne. And I can be doing that kind of in my mind even though my body is sitting there with the computer pretending to be in this room. So there is an essential dependence of the um, person upon the body, but there's also a little bit of independence. Uh, the little bit, bit of independence means that uh, the other side of the coin of the gathering of the family in the tomb is um, in some sense a place where the, uh, the personalities, the persons, uh, can be in some sense in relation to one another and together and even have some kind of self-awareness. And we'll come to uh, Samuel uh, and the story about that in due course. Uh, Abraham then gets um, buried um, by Isaac and Ishmael uh, in that cave where Sarah was. Um, and there is a feature here that recurs in some of these stories in Genesis of the um, offspring whose relationship between in lifetime may have been somewhat tricky, um, joining together uh, at the scene um, of the burial which one of you on your postings, posting found this, um, wondered whether this might be, um, it couldn't really be that as great as that reads. Um, were they really so reconciled? Well, maybe they weren't. Uh, but the way the story works, uh, there's something positive about the fact that the two brothers are there together um, on the, at the moment of um, Abraham's death. There's what somebody called in their posting um, the communal aspect of grieving. Um, chapter 35 of Genesis. Um, Uh, well, we, that's where we get the Rachel story before we get to the story of Isaac in a minute. Um, the, I, I expected somebody, when I read that passage out, um, to ask about where it says that Rachel's soul was departing. Um, and, and I was thinking, just while I got my Hebrew Bible, um, I think it's actually... The, it, it, the, the word is the Hebrew word nefesh, uh, which um, can mean the, which is often translated the soul, whoops, um, uh, but, but means the whole person, um, and quite often means life. Um, and so if it turns out that it's Rachel's nefesh that's departing, I shall reckon that, that's, that it means that... that uh, it, she's breathing out. She's breathing her last, as we will put it. 
but I'm just going to check it. Yes. Um, so I'd say it's as her life was departing, because she died, she named him uh, Benoni. Uh, oh, the, the, uh, I, say the, the, I see that the TNIV has got uh, when she breathed her last. Um, I guess it was... Well, I was going to say it's, it, it, it's purely, it was purely impractical... Um, and sad that they had to bury Rachel where they did, somewhere away from uh, where Abraham and Sarah had been buried. Um, later on, we'll come to the way in which both Jacob and Joseph want to be buried, who um, both die in Egypt, want their bones to be taken to um, that cave where Jacob, where Abraham and um, Sarah are, please. Um, and... Uh, that doesn't happen to Rachel. See, she uh, gets that special burial place. And everybody always remembers, um, as you see from the um, account in Jeremiah uh, and in Matthew. At the very end of that chapter, um, Jacob comes back to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had resided as aliens. The days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last uh, he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And the relationship between Esau and Jacob has been uh, much tr trickier than the one between Isaac and Ishmael. So their coming together at that moment is a, a neat piece of closure uh, in that story. Uh, Jacob's, um, the story of Jacob's, Jacob takes a long time to die. Um, takes, Jacob takes three chapters to die, which is excessive, really. Um, but then he is Jacob, um, and one or two people asked about, commented about the, his change uh, of name, of other issues that come in connection uh, with the uh, with Jacob's story, uh, and and about the the several stories where somebody who's about to die uh, is able to. Give some to give a kind of um, burial speech. Um, I mean, arguably, the whole of Deuteronomy is uh, Moses' burial speech. I imagine there must have been a few people died while he was delivering it, really. It's a bit like Paul um, when he's preaching and the guy falls out the window because um, I can't take it any longer. I did die, doesn't die for it. Um, I, I suspect that. The, 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 in the in the uh, in, in other writings in the the um, in other Jewish writings from uh, the end of the Old Testament period and New Testament times, there are a number of writings that are called testaments, which is the kind of thing that this speech of Jacob's um, is here, uh, in which they talk about God's purpose, what God's going to do, and things like that. Partly on the assumption uh, that. Uh, somebody who's a, who is looking death in the face and is about to be there, um, or someone like Enoch who gets taken without uh, dying, or somebody like Isaiah who does have visions of God, 
is in a position to be able to tell you some things which other people wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, that's the assumption, I think, that underlies the way that um, Jacob speaks in Genesis uh, 49. Um, he's able to speak about promise, uh, about God's promises and about God's blessings and, and some warnings. Um, he is, he insists on being buried um, in Canaan uh, for the same reason as Abraham wants a place to bury Sarah in in Canaan. That is, it's, it's the promised land. Um, but more generally, nearly than that, uh, it, place is important. Uh, when, uh, if Anne dies before me, uh, I want to scatter her ashes. I shall have her uh, cremated here. I mean, if it happens here. Uh, and take her ashes back to England. And I shall scatter them uh, in the River Dove, in Dovedale, in Derbyshire, in the centre of England, uh, in the, which is the valley... Uh, where the hotel was, where we started off our married life, where we went uh, for the beginning of our honeymoon. Um, and if I die first, then I want my ashes scattered there, please. Well, I'm not saying please to you, because I've said them in one of those documents that your primary care physician makes you fill in with your death wishes. Um, I've said that I want bat out of hell played at my funeral. Um, but I'm not necessarily expecting my sons to adhere to all my wishes. Um, but uh, I hope that they will scatter my ashes in Dovedale um, and, uh, and, and that I shall have the chance, if she dies first, to scatter Anne's ashes there. Because that's a place that's very important to us. Even though um, we just spent a, a day or two there at the beginning, though we often used to go back there because it wasn't so far away from where we eventually lived most of um, uh, married life in England, um, place is important to you. Um, and at one level, what's going on in these stories is the importance of place. Uh, though, of course, there is a particular... Um, there's also a thing about your place in God's purpose that's presupposed here and the particularity of the place in God's purpose uh, that applies to, um, applies to Jacob. Uh, the, the chapters go on for quite a while, um, partly because Jacob knows that death is coming. Uh, he has a consciousness of death coming, um, and he's accepting it. Um, and, um, and, and is able to deal with it. Several people um, in their postings raised questions about uh, this material, using this material, in, 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 uh, they couldn't imagine or something like that, or would it do any good, was it a good idea, to use this material in connection with people when they were dying. And that wasn't my assumption, asking the question, how would you use this material? I doubt whether it would, as other, as other people in their postings commented, I doubt whether it would be a good idea to start reading some of these stories. I mean, it might be, depends who it was. But generally speaking, when you're dying, it's too late to deal with the death question. Um, the death question has to be dealt with before uh, you're dying. And so this material is much more significant for people like us who probably, aren't aware of dying at the moment. And it's much more significant for the clients that you're involved with now when they're reasonably well. Um, because it's when you're reasonably well uh, that you need to start dealing with the dying death question. Um, and, and it then is one of the most important questions that we ever think about. So it's the kind of, it's a poignant um, sadness 
that, generally speaking, our culture encourages us to avoid the question when, um, and this is, I think is an, an implication of Ecclesiastes, that, that when you're alive and in the fullness of life is the time when you need to look at the death question. Because you need to look at the life question that, please God, you're going to have for another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever years. It's important to look at the question of what living means in light of the fact that it's going to end in death. But, but you need to do that, as it were, now. Not when you're on your deathbed, when it's too late. Um, when you're in no state really to think about death. And also it's too late to think about life. And I think there's a hint um, of... Well, lots of these characters, really, um, because it was maybe built, more built into their culture, but in particular in this Jacob story, um, of being able to deal uh, with the fact that death was coming um, because Jacob has thought about it before. He's buried a wife or three, for one thing, um, and that uh, would concentrate the mind, I imagine. The other, the other thing about the Jacob story is that... Um, is the, question, is, the, is the question of what happens after father dies. Uh, and it brings out into the open the question that suspiciously one or two of you raised about Isaac and Ishmael or about Jacob and Esau. That is, if there have been bad relations in the family before a person dies, but as long as the person is alive, those are kind of um, swept um, under the carpet. When the person dies, well, that it'll all come out. Um, and the uh, behavior of Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50 indicates that they know about that uh, piece of dynamic. Once dad's gone, then Joseph will be able to do what he likes um, and get his own back, which they um, suspect he's been wanting to do all these years. Um, and when I read the, the Joseph story and the way he plays cat and mouse um, with his brothers earlier on, um, I wonder whether that they've got reason for fearing that he might want to do his worst to them now. Uh, but blessing me doesn't often come good um, in these uh, in these last verses, when, when when the brothers bless them, try once again to pull the wool over his eyes. Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of your servants and the God of your father. Oh, yeah, says Joseph. Why didn't I hear about that then? Well, no, he doesn't say that. Joseph wept when, he spoke to, when they spoke to him. And I don't know what those tears, all those sorts of things, those tears that Joseph can mean. Um, sadness that they still assume that. Um, sadness at the, at the idea. Um, or... Um, a, a strange kind of, not exactly joy, but um, freedom, freedom in being able to say to them, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? That is, am I the person who's, who can take vengeance? Vengeance belongs to God, remember, says Joseph. It hasn't said that in the Old Testament yet, but it'll say it a few times later, but, uh, but that's what Joseph is, is assuming. Am I in the place of God? It's not, it's not my God to do that kind of thing. You're in real trouble, actually, my brothers, because that's God's business to do that, so God will probably be a lot tougher to you than I am. No, he doesn't quite say that. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people, as he is doing today. So have no fear. 
I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. And so um, the, the death uh, of the father, the head of the household, which the brothers rightly perceive can bring out the trouble in the family, and um, so often does bring out the trouble in the family, doesn't have to do that. It depends um, on the people who are involved. Uh, Joseph's own death follows straight afterwards. Um, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones, uh, my bones from here. Uh, his father, uh, they had had embalmed and taken him up to Canaan and buried him. Uh, Joseph uh, assumes, for reasons that aren't clear, unspecified, uh, that they will um, keep him, bury him there and keep his bones. Um, this may seem weird, but they did, uh, it was a very common practice, when you did discover that there was less of grandma than there was before, uh, you would then put the bones in um, a, a kind of urn. Um, and I imagine Joseph is thinking in those uh, terms, so that eventually his bones are going to be buried in the promised land. Um, and that means that he really shares in the fulfilment of God's promise um, and, and it means that he can look forward to sharing uh, in the fulfilment of God's promise. The place matters to him um, as it mattered to Jacob. Um, he gets embalmed as his father had, which as a bunch of people asked about that, which is in part, I mean, anybody needs to have, anybody needs to have something done to it if you're going to keep it for more than a day or two uh, and not in the fridge because extremely nasty things happen to bodies uh, and that will be the m very much so in a place like Egypt where it's very hot uh, and embalming is in part simply a practical thing uh, in order for you to be able to keep the body for a little while um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, then be able to deal with uh, funeral questions and so on. Moses, um, who you think is going to um, die and get buried in the promised land, and neither are true. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and Yahweh showed him the whole land. Um, because he's up on a mountain where you can look over the whole land. Um, north, you can look north to Gilead as far as Dan. Uh, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, looking north. West, uh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, that is the Mediterranean, um, the Negev to the south, um, and the plain, that is the, the, the valley of Jericho just in front of you with the Dead Sea in it, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. All the way around the land he, he sees. Yahweh said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. 
I have let you see it with your eyes. But you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab at Yahweh's command. He was buried in, the, in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his burial place to this day. Well, did God bury him? One of you asked. That's a good question. He was buried, but there's no subject for this verb in that chunk that I just read. And if nobody knows where he was buried, then apparently nobody was there, right? In other words, it looks rather as if, a bit like Enoch, uh, and later on Elisha, Elijah, Moses simply disappeared. It's a bit like Scott of the Antarctic, you know. I'm going out. I may be a while, says Moses. And you never see him again. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Um, the, uh, the rector whom, uh, to whom I was uh, an assistant uh, rector when I was first ordained used to say, Moses spent 40 years learning to be somebody when he was a prince in Egypt. 40 years learning to be nobody when he had to take refuge in Midian. And then 40 years showing what God could do with a somebody who learned to be a nobody. That's cool. I still remember it. It's 40-something years since he said that, my rector. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. He still got all his manly strength. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plain of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as Yahweh has commanded Moses. Well, if you look at the way the Israelites um, did in relation to Moses, then you feel a bit sorry for Joshua. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that Yahweh sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Well, why wasn't he allowed to go into the promised land then? Some of you want to know. Um, and um, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy itself gives you some rather unsatisfactory explanations of that that involve him striking a rock when he's supposed to have talked to it well, that's a bit hard, isn't it? A bit literalistic, God, aren't you? And yet, evidently, as far as God is concerned, the point at which there is that point at which Moses breaks and takes too much honour, too, too much, no, not honour, too much um, importance to himself. Shall we do this for you, he says, about of him um, and Aaron? Uh, Moses, that's in Numbers. In Deuteronomy... Moses talks about, in effect, the, the way in which he pays the penalty for the people's sin. And he does. If it hadn't been for their recalcitrance, their disobedience, their complaints, then he'd never, they'd, he would never have been driven over the cliff. Um, and he pays the penalty for letting himself be driven over the cliff. Um, it's another illustration, I guess, uh, of... A capacity of God's to be tough um, that the whole Bible describes. Um, but that is then 
mitigated, surely, uh, by the fact that, well, Moses thinks he's going to die, and that's it. Moses doesn't know that afterwards he's going to wake up and find himself in heaven. And I imagine, again, when you meet Moses in heaven, and you say, well, didn't you object to not being able to um, go into the promised land? And I imagine he'll say, yeah, it was pretty tough. I thought God was being a bit tough, really. But have you seen this heaven place? Um, perhaps further, there is something um, theological or symbolic or significant or something. Well, more than one thing about Moses dying outside the promised land. Uh, it's been suggested that it's a kind of symbol uh, of the incompleteness um, of the nature of our human experience. Um, that the Israelites' occupation of the land won't be complete. Um, our own experience of fullness of life in Christ isn't complete. There must be more than this. Um, and, uh, and Moses dying outside the promised land is a kind of sign of the incompleteness of all human experience um, and achievement. Uh, and also makes it possible for there to be a, a new start in this new land with a new leader, Joshua. So that once again... What happens to an individual, to a leader like Moses, is subordinate to the achievement of God's purpose. The, the neat things that happen, like God appearing to Saul of Tarsus and turning him into somebody who believes in Jesus, aren't done because Saul of Tarsus is a great guy, because he isn't, and aren't in a sense done for his sake. They're done for the sake of God's purpose. And the tough things, like Moses outside, dying outside the promised land, happen for the sake of God's purpose and not merely in connection with uh, Moses himself. Uh, Joshua, in Joshua 24, follows the example of Jacob and Moses and um, delivers one or two impressive speeches uh, at the end of his life in chapters 23 and 24 um, and issues a closing challenge to the people there. Um, Samuel in 1 Samuel 12 um, delivers a closing speech which is um, more defensive than other people's and uh, here I am, testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed, the king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Um, you haven't defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from the hand of anyone. He said to them, Yahweh is witness against you that you've not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel's a defensive guy in some of the previous years. You can see the people's personality coming out on their deathbeds. Not very surprising, I guess. Uh, when we um, come back to Samuel uh, in a minute, um, the kind of testiness of uh, Samuel will, will come, come out again. Uh, in, in this... Um, deathbed speech of Samuel's he again he looks back over his life um, he issues a challenge to them 
Um, and uh, he makes a commitment to... Um, he repeats, I think, a commitment here to keep praying for them. Um, Sam, Samuel, uh, unlike uh, Jacob um, and Joseph and Moses, uh, is able to get buried uh, in his own town. Chapter 28 tells you that when Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city, um, he, he dies in the land so he can be buried in his own town in a way that the others couldn't. And then there's this wonderful story about Saul. Um, who um, gives you a vivid illustration in chapter 28, um, before his final battle, um, of... Um, uh, of the notion of Sheol, uh, this place uh, where, think of them if you like as ghosts, where, the place where the ghosts are. So uh, if you've got the right technique, you can summon up a ghost. The Old Testament assumes that through and through. There were experts who could summon up ghosts, uh, as there are people in our own culture, as there have been in all, in all cultures, who reckon they can make contact with the dead for you. Uh, and it would seem to me to be unwise for us to assume that they're always um, uh, simply deceiving you. They might be a lot of the time, um, but I don't think there's any reason to reckon that this one is, and um, no reason to reckon that they're always doing that. Um, if people carry on existing, when you, when you die, it means that your life goes away, but it doesn't mean that you stop existing. Um, and uh, if God wants to let a ghost come back, God can do it. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be uh, something that uh, I need be sceptical about. The assumption of behind divination, behind spiritualism, uh, is that the natural one, um, that, that people, who've dead, people who are dead know some things that people who are alive don't know. Um, and uh, if you and it was a common practice um, in Middle Eastern religions, in Israel and elsewhere, and it's common practice in traditional religions today to seek to make contact with the dead in order to be able to find out things that are going to happen. Um, so you can reassure yourself, or so you can prepare for them, or so you can evade them. Um, Saul. Uh, that was never. That was always being done in Israel, but it was always uh, not supposed to be being done. So on a good day, Saul has uh, abolished all the mediums, uh, but now uh, on a bad day, he's looking for one and he finds one. Um, and up comes Samuel, as I say, being as testy um, as, as ever, um, saying to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? There I was having 3,000 years sleep, um, and you interrupted it. Uh, and Samuel confirms uh, the worst about what's going to happen next day, uh, and in chapter 31 it duly happens. Um, Sheol then is the place where everybody, where 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 dead personalities go. It's 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 not um, a place of suffering or punishment. 
it's, it's neither heaven nor hell. Uh, the, eventually, the um, New Testament word for, uh, or the, the Hebrew word for heaven, which gets, for hell, which gets used, uh, or, which is a Hebrew word that they adapt, is the word Gehenna. But Gehenna doesn't, there isn't a hell, there isn't a place called Gehenna like that within the Old Testament. And neither is there um, a, a, a heaven to which um, those who belong to God are going to go to. There's simply this indeterminate Sheol place, which, as I've said already, is um, uh, whose chief um, vice seems to be that it's boring. But you're okay there. And um, in due course, um, the, uh, the, the, when I think in due course, Jesus goes there and says, great news, I've died, I'm rising from the dead. Those of you who belong to God can go, are going to be able to go to heaven now. Um, and they all say, hooray. And some of them rather naughtily get out of their tombs and wander around Jerusalem, um, as it says at the end of Matthew 28, at the uh, time of the crucifixion. But really they ought to go back, because they have to wait until Resurrection Day, because that's when everybody <laughs> is going to come uh, out with proper bodies not just being kind of ghost figures, as I imagine those guys at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel were. Uh, because uh, uh, we too will go to Sheol. Um, we'll, we'll, be, we'll have maybe more of an assurance of, it, of everything. Well, we will have more of an assurance of it being okay. We'll be with Christ, um, and uh, we'll be at rest, and we'll know, we know that there's going to be a resurrection. But we too will wait with Abraham and people like that, um, until uh, everybody uh, is raised together at the end. But meanwhile, um, Samuel and eventually Saul uh, are simply there. Saul um, fights his last battle, go, goes out to fight his last battle. Um, well, no, before that, the media at the end of chapter 28... Um, after Samuel has delivered his letter, his message. Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. The woman, the medium, came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Your servant has listened to you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. That is, I've uh, summoned um, Samuel up. Now therefore you also listen to your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you. Eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he got up from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house. She quickly slaughtered it, took flour, kneaded it and baked unleavened cakes. These kind of stories always amaze me. The notion that, I mean, it's going to take you a while to kill a calf, dismember it, cut it up, and cook it, isn't it? But anyway, she does, it's like, you know, like when the guys arrive to meet Ab see Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, and they just want a burger and, and get going on their journey. But Abraham insists on fitting the, fit, killing this fatted calf. She put them before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Has Saul kind of turned a corner? Is Saul now capable of facing his destiny? Um, well, he fights his battle, um, and the Philistines kill his sons, uh, and eventually uh, he gets 
um, fatally wounded. He wants his army bearer um, to finish him off because he doesn't want the Philistines to have the satisfaction of doing so. Um, but his armor bearer uh, won't kill the king, uh, and so Saul falls on his own sword. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. When the Philistines show up to strip the dead, they find Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armour and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armour in the temple of Astarte, one of their goddesses, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bet-Shan. Bet-Shan is a great um, mound, a tell, that is a, um, uh, an artificial hill that represents one city piled on top of another um, in the centre of Israel. Uh, and on the top of the tell at Bet-Shan uh, were two or three, uh, n- now, until very recently at least, two or three dead-looking trees, really. Um, and whenever I look at those trees, I think of Saul's bodies. That's, where, that's, that's the scene where Saul died. I think of Saul hanging on those trees. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had said done to Saul... All the valiant men set out, travelled all night long and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bet-Shan. Jabesh Gilead is the other side of the Jordan um, and that was the town that Saul had um, rescued from their oppressors uh, in the greatest uh, moment of his life at the beginning of his kingship. Um, And as it were, they know that they owe Saul. They came to Jabesh and burned his body there so that nobody else could... um, the Philistines couldn't come and get it and, do, and assault it. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and, fa- and Jabesh and fasted seven days. Sat Shiva for Saul. And it's a grievous end to a sad life. And yet it's a grievous end that, that has um, the edge taken off its awfulness by the way in which maybe, at least... Saul um, was able to face his destiny on that day. There was no way he could evade it. Um, But he did pull himself together, uh, eat that meal, go his way, um, fight his battle, face his end. Um, And the way in which um, those people whom he had been a blessing to made it possible for him and his sons to have uh, a burial um, and mourned for him. David whose story has unravelled in the latter part of 2 Samuel in the aftermath of the Bathsheba Uriah business um, and then in connection with his failure to do anything about the rape of Tamar uh, and the uh, civil war started by Absalom uh, his, he lost his touch um, after the Bathsheba Uriah business and his life and his family's life fell apart 
Uh, and in the closure of his story, he is this pathetic, cold um, old man who uh, can't get warm. Um, which may be a euphemism for he can't get it up. Uh, and the most beautiful girl you can find can't help him do so. Uh, and, but, and he still hasn't done the key thing of deciding who, who's going to be his successor. Uh, and, and so in these last two chapters of his story, um, he is subject to manipulation by the likes um, of Nathan and Bathsheba in order to get him to make a decision. Any decision will do, but we need some decision, otherwise the whole show is going to fall apart. But um, Bathsheba knows what decision um, she wants and she gets it uh, and gets David to nominate uh, Solomon uh, in chapter 2. David kind of pulls himself together and delivers his final charge, which is what you're supposed to do, telling his son to uh, be strong and courageous and keep the charge of Yahweh his God. And then just to make sure that he kills the people who still need killing, Jacob, in one, uh, David, you see, in one sense, is still the same guy. So David then uh, slept with his ancestors. Same, exp or similar expression to that one used about being gathered um, to your fathers or ancestors. And was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. One of you said in your posting, David's death is kind of puzzling to me. I mean, it sort of makes sense that it's more about a kingly transfer of power and dealing with his enemies. But at the same time, I don't really know how to interpret it in a fruitful or redemptive way. Well, no, in a sense, there isn't one. Um... Uh, and that's, uh, it's, um, it's a solemn end, it's a sad end to a life that's become a sad life. Um, David's life is a life that goes like that, and it doesn't show any improvement really at the end. Um, and one has to face that. There are lives like that. Um, maybe Saul's, you see, Saul's life is the, it's got the same trajectory, but paradoxically, surprisingly, maybe takes a little bit more of a, of a, a rise at the end. Maybe it's the, it's the tiniest glimpse of a Hollywood ending um, in the Saul story, but not in the David story. Um, and maybe that shows that um, Scripture doesn't reckon that it ought also to always to give us um, redemptive endings to stories, because there aren't, there isn't, there isn't always redemption. Um, you'll meet David in heaven as well, and you can say to David. You are really stupid, weren't you, in the second half of your life? And Dave will say, yeah, it's just as well that God relates to us on the basis of grace, not works, isn't it? Um, so that's maybe the fruitful or redemptive um, angle. But um, we need to be realistic and kind of solemn about the realistic and solemn aspects to uh, the way human life often works out. Mm-hmm. I've heard some, some people before argue that uh, one of the ways to take 
that we, we should take the Bible seriously is that it doesn't try to paint an ideal picture mm, yeah. of the biblical characters. Yeah. Right now I'm wondering, is that more theological or is it more cultural though? That is, is could that just be Jewish culture that they're not the ones that would try to write up, try to idealize their own history? <coughs> is that in, and, and in effect, is that still a valid argument for us to talk about the validity of the Bible? That it's valid because it doesn't try to cover up the weaknesses of its characters? Well, you, I think you'd, you'd have to ask the question, I suppose my, my presupposition is, when it says, say in 2 Timothy, that all these stories, all this material, um, is designed to... Uh, instruct you with regard to faith in Christ Jesus and to take you towards maturity um, as, as a believer. Um, the prejudice, my, my, the, the, my prejudice is in favour of reckoning that the nature of these stories is, is designed to work that way. Um, not that I ought to uh, write it off because... Um, I mean, why should I decide that this particular aspect of it, as opposed to any other aspect, um, is part of Jewish culture and therefore isn't part of what I'm supposed to learn from? It, in light, not least, of the way the New Testament talks, um, it, I would have thought it was something I was supposed to learn from. And, and precisely insofar as it, it confronts our desire for... Um, redemptive endings that's precisely we ought to why we ought to take notice of it because it's it sort of frustrates um, it, it, it can precisely when it makes when it thinks differently from the way that we think is the point at which it's really stupid of us to say oh that must be just part of the culture <coughs> um, because keeping with things I was saying earlier uh, the um, the reality of death is something they're good at facing it's something that we're bad at facing. Um, and so if we simply say, oh, it was their culture that made them willing to face death, then we've missed out on something that we need to learn from. Um, so I think both, both because of the, the stance the New Testament takes to the Old Testament and because of being able to apply to, and because of that kind of uh, payoff, it will be unwise I don't think there's reason to, to write it off simply as Jewish culture, and it would be unwise to do so, I would have thought. Um, was it Simeon came next, or Zechariah? In the ones that you did? Simeon, Simeon yeah. I've got, I, wrote, I originally put Zechariah, and I've crossed it out and put Simeon, and I want to make sure that I'm on the right track. Uh, Simeon receives um, the child Jesus um, and says, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of, every, of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now I can die. I've been waiting to see the Messiah. Uh, now... Um, uh, you, you, now you're letting me go. Now you can let me go. Because I've seen the Messiah. There's nothing else that I could possibly ask for. 
It's a beautiful um, stance with regard to death. And then Jesus, what, 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 what should one say? Um, Jesus who faces death with um, bravery, but who faces death with fear. Jesus who doesn't want to die, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus who, in dying, um, knows that God has turned away from him, or at least that God won't come to his help. God hasn't turned away from him, I believe, because I believe God is sitting there in heaven, watching steadfastly, looking. Um, and, and Jesus looks up to God and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because although God is looking, and Jesus knows he's looking, God is simply sitting there and doing nothing. Uh, and Jesus will say that. Jesus who prays for his enemies, prays for his persecutors, prays for the people who have um, put him to death to be forgiven. On the grounds they don't know what they're doing. Oh yeah, they do. But they don't, in another sense. Jesus who stays in some measure of control, he eventually uh, gives up his life, gives up his spirit. Jesus who has people, uh, who gets abandoned by most people, uh, but then has some people mourning him afterwards and wanting to bury him properly um, and to anoint his body. <coughs> Stephen, who follows Jesus' example in praying for the people who are killing him, and follow some of those early examples by um, delivering the most momentous theological um, uh, speech as he's about to die. Though, in his case, it's not that he delivers his speech because he's about to die, but he dies because of the speech that he delivers. <laughs> um, and, as I say, who like Jesus, uh, prays uh, for his enemies. Um, and like Jesus, uh, well, not well, yes, sort of like praise, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy. I'm already being poured out as a libation. My love is being sacrificed in God's honour. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul can end his life a bit like Samuel. Look back over it and say, that's true, isn't it? I dare you to kind of uh, say it's been indifferent. Uh, from now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. The righteous crown. The... Um, Garland of victory, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Um, Alexander the coppersmith did me great... Well, no, let's do... Uh, bring me the books and the parchments. The, the guy's dying and he wants to read a theological book and he wants to write another few letters. And a few churches that have received his letters quiver. Oh no, he's going to write more letters. <laughs> and a few theological students are going to have to read them in Greek. Quiver. Oh no, he's going to write more letters. <laughs> Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. So praying for your enemies is... Okay, but looking forward to their being punished is apparently okay as well. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. Now, it may not be counted against them. Well, there is a prayer for them, if he means it. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will save me from every, rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, <coughs> bullish to the end, you know, mm, full of energy uh, in the way that he faces death. Um, I find students are often uh, um, worried about the confidence with which the guys in the Psalms declare their, not their sinlessness, but their commitment and their having been good servants of God's and that they've got nothing to, um, to be ashamed of that ought to make God unwilling to answer their prayers. Um, well, Paul's like that as well. I fought the good fight. Paul, can, Paul reckons you ought to be able to look at your life and say, yep, I'm committed to going God's way. I've been committed to going God's way. Oh, and finally, Ecclesiastes, well, um, who is so wonderfully realistic about death, uh, who rubs your nose in the facts about death, uh, and who, living before Christ, rubs your nose in the fact that, uh, that there's no evidence that anybody is going to have any meaningful life, that there's going to be this eternal life or this heaven or this resurrection lark. Now, here's a, a kind of weird thing about, the, um, about Israel. You see, people's around, um, lots of people's around believed. It's not, that, it's not that evolution, progressive revelation, hadn't got as far as anybody dreaming up the idea of afterlife. Uh, people's have very commonly believed uh, in a positive afterlife. More, I mean, shale is a kind of afterlife, but um, a kind of positive, a neat, paradise-like afterlife. Lots of people's have believed in that. What was weird about the Israelites was that they didn't. Um, and... Um, but, but in the, la the last part of the Old Testament period, they were starting to. Um, the nearest there is to actual reference to it in the Old Testament is Daniel. Uh, by by Jesus' day, um, the, the Pharisees were the people who believed in, re in the resurrection. The Sadducees weren't. Sadducees were, um, believed in the Bible and didn't, didn't say resurrection, so they didn't believe in it. Um, the Pharisees uh, didn't mind a few extra biblical traditions, so they... Um, like the idea of resurrection, so they believed in it. Um, and they believed in it, uh, it, the belief in the resurrection was encouraged, not least by the experience of martyrdom, of people being martyred for their faith, um, in a period like the period of the Maccabees. Uh, and that's not fair, is it? Uh, and so belief in resurrection um, compensates for, is, is, the, is, a, is, is um, linked with theodicy. If God is going to give you a resurrection life, then it wasn't too bad that you died early, that you got martyred that way. 
but there's no evidence for it. And Ecclesiastes wants to rub people's noses in the fact that there is no evidence for it. So start living in the light of what there's evidence of. Uh, and until Christ rises from the dead, Ecclesiastes is absolutely right. There is no evidence. Uh, until Christ rises from the dead, then there's some evidence. Um, Ecclesiastes remains significant because it remains uh, um, the recognition that unless you believe in Christ, you've got no evidence for afterlife. Um, in, in our culture, as in most, uh, in Western cultures, more people believe in an afterlife than believe in God. Well, it's obvious why, you know. Nobody wants to believe that life simply ends when life ends. But there's no evidence for it, except on a basis um, of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Ecclesiastes wants to rub your nose uh, in that. Uh, it also um, encourages you um, to... Uh, encourages us, who know about resurrection, to take seriously the fact of death and the unpredictability of death um, and in order not to live in denial of death, which is what our culture so much encourages us to do. Um, hmm. Anybody want to say anything? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it simply means breathed out. Uh, I mean, I remember the first person I watched die was my mother-in-law. Uh, and she'd had a heart attack. She was in hospital. And her breathing became more kind of irregular. And eventually, she, did, she simply breathed her last. She breathed out and she never breathed in again. Um, and, and so, whereas life starts back in Genesis with God breathing breath uh, into humanity so that... This thing that's a bit like Pinocchio. Do you know about Pinocchio? Yeah. This kind of Pinocchio-like character, which is what Adam is, becomes a, a real person because God does mouth to mouth. God puts breath into the Pinocchio figure. Um, and, and when you die, um, you give your breath back to God and you become a Pinocchio figure again. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, is that a way? Is that a way of reshaping? Uh, of re, is, is that a way of rephrasing that when you end up serving God, it's likely to cost you? Uh, it's no fun serving God. Oh, it is fun serving God. Um, but it's likely, to, it's likely, to, it's 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 like it's not a rose garden, um, and uh, people do get martyred. Uh, that's it's. Uh, Jesus says, uh, "Okay, if you want to follow me, take up your cross." In other words, if you want to follow me, you're going to be executed. Um, uh, and that's, I guess that would you would one say that's. Um, that, that God, is in, God is involved in a real battle 
for the fulfillment of God's purpose in the world that involves taking on powers of evil um, and that it cost God uh, to win that victory um, and it costs God's servants being involved in the winning and the continuing of that victory. Paul talks in Colossians about fulfilling in his body what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And in one sense, there was nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ, but there's still some suffering that has to be done in order that the story of Christ can be spread around the world. Um, and uh, uh, and that's, that's of a piece with the nature of how God had to um, win that, that victory over evil. Wow. How do Christians use these resources to comfort and not to hurt? Where's the balance? All I can say is I've had really bad experiences. Christians interfering with the grieving process of people who lose their loved ones. Pastors and preachers feel like they need to rebuke the person for crying. That's, you see, because the, we pastors and preachers can't cope with death ourselves. That's why you have to um, come to terms with death. Otherwise, you won't be able to uh, minister to people with regard to that. They preach that the person is in heaven with God and we shouldn't grieve. However, we seen that there was a long grieving process in scriptures. Christians focus more on the promise part and unintentionally hurt the hurting by interfering in their grieving process. Intellectualizing why the person dies or trying to give explanation is a theological issue and may not be helpful for, them for, helpful for the grieving in any way. A person who loses a loved one deserves support, not answer. That's a great sentence. A person who loses a loved one deserves support, not answer. That was Job's problem with his friends. They kept giving him answers. And answers was not what he needed. Suffering um, like death is something you have to sort out before you're involved in it. Uh, when you're involved in it, it's too late. Goodbye. Go away. Come back next Monday. Uh, will some, would some people like dessert next Monday? Scones? Yes. yes. Okay. Next Monday there will be scones.